And now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. Neil Shubin. Neil Shubin is the author of Your Inner Fish and the Universe Within. With a colleague, he discovered one of the most important fossils in the history of the National Geographic Society, and he has been a major force behind a new evolutionary synthesis of expeditionary paleontology, developmental genetics, and genomics. He is an associate dean of biological sciences at the University of Chicago. Give a warm welcome to Mr. Neil Shubin. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. Well, it's great to be here in this venue, which is, a, which is a, a shout out to automotive history, because that's relevant to what we're doing today, not the automotive bit, but the, the history bit. That is, tonight, the, the purpose of tonight's discussion and talk is really to show you the relevance of history, why it's important. Because to me, as a paleontologist, history defines my worldview, and it really affects everything I do from the way I see the world to the way I actually operate in the world itself. History is like, when you know history, it's like wearing a new pair of glasses that changes the familiar, changes how it looks to you. When you see history, you don't see our world in the same way again. And that history extends from the history of our species to the history of our planet to the history of our cosmos. And indeed, those histories are linked, and those histories are linked inside of us. It's a wonderful story, and it begins for me as a paleontologist in the way I know history. First of all, let's, t let's, let's get a sense of what history tells us, just an overview about our, our planet. The more you know about history of our planet, the more you realize that what we take as normal and ordinary in today's world is utterly unusual. And indeed, our entire planet is utterly dynamic. That is, if you look at the, uh, the poles, there's ice there, but that's unique in the history of of planet Earth. Most of the history of planet Earth is without ice at the poles. You look at Mount Everest. At the top of Mount Everest are marine rocks of an ancient ocean. If you look in the rocks of, of uh, Antarctica, what do you see? You see evidence of ancient rainforests. In fact, most of the history of the continent of Antarctica is a history of a lush tropical rainforest environment. So, so much of what we take is familiar, even down to the fact of our own species. Most of the history of a bipedal species, when it's walking on two legs, with big brains, is the history of multiple species on the planet. More than one kind. Yet, we live in a world where there's only one kind. So everything is different uh, when you learn history. Now, as a paleontologist, I'm, the way I'm going to break this talk down is I'm going to talk about what it's like to be a paleontologist and what we do. Then I'll show how that links us to the rest of life on our planet. Then we'll take the more cosmic view to look at how we interdigitate with cosmic history and what that means. Sort of tying together both of my books, Your Inner Fish and um, Universe Within. So as a paleontologist, my, sort of mo what my goal in life is to provide evidence for the great transitions in evolution. Now, what are the great transitions? Well, you think of the big jumps, right? The big ones, like the origin of vertebrates, creatures with backbones and skulls. Uh, the origin of birds, the origin of land-living creatures, fish to amphibians. These, these are the great transitions. And the whole idea is to provide evidence that these are knowable transitions, that by going out and working in the rocks, by going out and studying living creatures in their DNA and their genomes, and other kinds of perspectives as well, we can begin to know of these events that happened millions, and in some cases, billions of years ago. My entire entree to what became my life's work happened in the second year of graduate school for me. I was in a graduate seminar, and the professor in that seminar you know, showed a slide, and that slide um, changed my life. <laughs> it's, it was a slide, I sound awfully crazy, it was a slide of the, what we knew about the fish to amphibian transition in 1985. It had a fish on top and, and, and an amphibian, a land-living creature on the bottom. And this slide, a cartoon, which showed the major aspects of transition from a fish to a limbed animal, captured my interest. Because what it did is, I was looked at that thing, I said, no way, there's no way fish you know, who live in water evolved to walk on land. How could such a major revolution in the history of life happen? You know, you think about it, everything has to change from respiration to excretion to the skeletal system, you know, system after system. And frankly, that slide and the, and the literature search after it became my passion became a, a quest, really, um, uh, to find evidence that tells us about these, uh, these transitions. So my toolkit, when I started my career, uh, was paleontology, that is to find fossils. So the first thing I did, getting out of graduate school, 
was to try to find new places to find fossils that tell, about, tell us about this great transition. And so I pulled out the paleontology playbook. And the paleontology playbook is really simple. Okay? Intellectually, it's very simple. In practice, it's really hard. But the intellectual bit is, okay, let's say you want to make a major discovery. You want to find new fossils that tell you about a great transition in evolution. What do you do? Well, you look in the world for places that have three things. The first thing is that they have places in the world that have rocks of the right um, age to answer whatever question interests you. Right? You know, so we, if you're interested in the fish to tetrapod or the fish amphibian transition, you're looking at rocks probably about 375 million years old. Um, the other thing you do uh, is you look for places in the world that have rocks of the right type to preserve fossils. Not every kind of rock does that. Not every rock has the right environment uh, that the creatures lived in or that, uh, that preserves the fossils. And so you look for, the, look for those, and then there's a third criterion, which is you look for places in the world where those rocks are exposed to the surface. It, it does us no good if those rocks are buried five miles underground, right? We have to see those rocks. You know, so when you open the pages of National Geographic, where are the paleontologists? They're typically uh, working in deserts. We love deserts. The reason why we love deserts is because there's naked bedrock at the surface. So I looked for places in the world that are rocks of the right type, rocks of the right um, age, and rocks that were exposed to the surface. And the hunt led me to rocks that were about three hours away from my home. I was living in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the time. And um, these rocks were, were nearby, and I started to work them with a wonderful colleague and friend, a guy named Ted Deschler, who I've been working with uh, ever since. It's been a great privilege. Anyway, one thing led to another, and Ted and I found lots of stuff. And we found some early land-living creatures. We found like little bits and pieces of their humeri, upper arm bone, pieces of their femora, their upper leg bone parts of their, um, their shoulder and skull and so forth, and it was really great. But we realized we had a problem. We had to move back in time, that the rocks we actually were looking at were too, too young. So what we did is we began a new search, looking for places in the world that are rocks the right age, rocks the right type, and that are exposed to the surface. One thing led to another, and we had plans to work in Brazil, we had plans to work in uh, um, uh, Alaska, and everything changed one day in my office. This is about serendipity in science. Um, everything changed one day in my office when Ted and I were having an argument, a debate about geology, and I pulled out my college geology textbook to settle the debate, and in that textbook, not even remotely related to the debate, was a figure showing the perfect kinds of rocks of the right age, the right type, and likely exposure that existed up in the Canadian Arctic in a place called Ellesmere Island, which is one of the most northern patches of land uh, in the world. I looked at Ted, and I said, Ted, do you know anybody who's worked on this patch? He said, I don't know anybody. Do you know anybody? He said, I don't know anybody. That's why I asked you. And so we went back and forth like this until we, we figured out we've got to run to the library and learn a little bit more about this stuff. Anyway, one thing led to another, and it turns out we, were, we discovered rocks up there that were uncovered, um, that were, were, were exposed uh, of the right age and the right type that had the exact kinds of fossils to answer the question we were after. And what we were after was a creature that was sort of intermediate between life in water and life on land. And on the fish end of that transition, what you had is fish with a conical head with, with eyes on either side. And like any fish, it didn't have a neck. And like any fish, it had fins, right? So that's one end of the transition. The other end of the transition are land-living creatures, which at the time had flat crocodile-like heads, uh, which had necks, right? Just like all land-living creatures. And they had limbs with fingers and toes and, and wrists and ankles. So essentially, um, what Ted and I were looking for is a flat-headed fish with fins. And, uh, well, we spent about six years, and there's a reason why I brought my bag up here, because I couldn't bring slides, but I could definitely bring a show-and-tell. We found a flat-headed fish with fins after six years, and this is the head of that fish. This fish has paired nostrils in the front. You can see it. I'll bring it to the, um, to the wine and cheese. Um, as, uh, <laughs> it doesn't eat wine and cheese, but it'll be all right with it. Um, it has nostrils, uh, two nostrils on the side. It has, um, it has a neck. I didn't bring the rest of the body. Uh, you know, and it has fins, which have fin rays. But when we took off the fin rays, what did we see? We saw bones that corresponded to upper arm, forearm, even parts of the wrist. So here you had a real mix between creatures that live in water uh, and live on land found at just the right time period uh, in evolution in rocks about 375 million years ago. And it was really a great thing for us to study this, trend, this huge evolutionary event. But really, the piece that I'm here talking to you about tonight is really not the fish to amphibian to tetrapod transition. It's really what that event means for us. And to generalize from there as we go ever backwards in time to the history of our planet and ultimately uh, to the cosmos. Because when we look at this creature known as Tiktaalik rosea, 
what we see is the origin of a new kind of limb with a wrist inside. What we're seeing is the origin of a new kind of connection to the head and the body with a neck inside. These are traits that were very useful for Tiktaalik and its evolutionary cousins as they invaded or as they, as they sort of um, uh, diversified in, uh, in aquatic ecosystems and later on land. But the take-home message is, is that fish to tetrapod, fish to amphibian transition, okay, is not some esoteric random event in the fossil record, in the evolution of life. That's a piece of our own history. That's a piece of our own history when our common ancestors were all fish. And I can connect those dots with fossils, with genes, with embryos, to tell you that every time you bend your wrist and every time you bend your neck, you could thank Tiktaalik and its evolutionary cousins who are the first ones to show that kind of trait uh, in the fossil record. And it goes deeper still. That is, if we look at fossils, if we look at embryos, if we look at DNA, what we see are wonderful and powerful connections between us and the rest of life on our planet. What that means is much of the human story is seen by looking at the record, if you will, of other creatures. Inside every cell, every gene, and every organ in our body lies over three billion years of the history of life, over four and a half billion years of the history of our planet, and over 13 billion years of the history of our universe. We inside our body contain artifacts of history of deep time. And our job as paleontologists, as geologists, as cosmologists and others is really to understand what those artifacts are and how they came about. The end result is that we are deeply connected to the universe, to the planet, and to other creatures. We're true citizens of that. And we uncover that in the history we share with all these different, all these different uh, features. So it's deep, um, deep ties to the history of life. Now what I should say is, on the biological side, which is where I'm starting, um, there are many lines of evidence that point to this shared history. And one of the reasons why I wrote, why I went into writing general science books is for the fact that many of the um, ideas and, and notions that my colleagues and I in science take as you know, true and in some cases trivial, trivially so, are, appear to be utterly bizarre to people in the general public. The connections among us and flies and worms uh, is one case in point. Indeed, you know, many of the bones you're using to hear me with right now and many of the bones and muscles and nerves I'm using to talk to you with right now correspond to gill bones in fish, sharks, and other creatures. Indeed, we can see that record in fossils, in DNA, uh, and in embryos of creatures alive today when we make these general comparisons. I remember when I told people that, they'd be utterly bizarre. They'd be, they'd, they'd be shocked. They'd say, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that this fish, Tiktaalik, tells us something about the origin of our own wrist? You're telling me that our ear bones correspond to gill bones and other creatures? And the answer is absolutely yes. And it's not just that I believe that. It's because the evidence points to that. It points to that through multiple independent lines of evidence, uh, which are the fossils, the DNA, and the, uh, and, and the uh, embryos. Anyway, so these deep connections are, are really wonderful, and indeed, they're very powerful uh, for us to study as scientists. Because when you think about the relevance of our connection to the rest of life on our planet, it's biomedically important. You know, when you think about what the, the Nobel Prizes in medicine or physio and physiology in the past 40 years for, you know, for work that's you know, made a difference in human health, you know, what research has been thus awarded? Research on Drosophila melanogaster, a fruit, a fruit fly? Uh, research on mice? Research on sea urchins? Uh, research on a little tiny worm the size of a comma on a piece of paper, Cinerabditis elegans, that won five Nobel Prizes in the last, uh, in the last eight years? All four discoveries that have, will have a direct bearing on human health. That is a powerful statement of the importance of our connection to the rest of life uh, on our planet. But our connections to, and that was, the top, that was the subject of my first book, uh, Urine or Fish. But those connections are just the tip of the iceberg because it's really our connections to rocks, to planets, to the solar system, and to the cosmos beyond that are even far more general. 
And I had an absolutely wonderful time writing the book as I you know, explored these connections, many of which we've known for a long time, many of which have been talked by other authors at the, other, at the whole time. But what I did is to take a timeline and to show how layer after layer of history is inside of us, and that seeing history is like peeling an onion. And as we peel that onion, we discover more about ourselves and ultimately the questions of you know, how we got here. So in these deeper connections, what do we see are connections between the atoms inside our bodies, the molecules inside our bodies, and our physiology and organs. Our atoms, as Carl Sagan uh, and Joni Mitchell used to revel in, was that we are stardust. Our atoms are generated at the, some, the smallest ones, the nuclei, uh, as the, in the after effects of the Big Bang, and ever larger and larger nuclei and atoms generated in the fusion reaction of stars or in supernovae. That's, that's supported by our knowledge of stellar evolution uh, and supported by our knowledge of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the elements and physical chemistry of our own body. That is, much of the stuff that makes us, the actual elements from the smallest to the largest, were indeed present in other parts of the universe before they came together as us. And when we die and when we pass, they will be returned to the universe and will be the part of other uh, of other systems, perhaps planets, solar systems, uh, stars, uh, and so forth. So there's the deep connections to the universe which are seen in our elements, okay, the nuclei of the atoms uh, that make us. But many of, the, um, many of the features inside of us are actually shaped by our connections uh, to the solar system and to the planet itself. And those I want to explore uh, very briefly uh, tonight. What are, you know, what are our ties to the solar system that are inside our body? I'll give you a few examples. Some of them are, are truly fundamental to our biology. The first example begins with a, um, well, the story actually begins with a guy named Kurt Richter who did groundbreaking work on rats uh, in the 1930s. But um, in my storytelling, uh, in, in thinking about how important this is to us, it begins with a, a Frenchman named Michel Sifre. Sifre uh, was a geologist, and he, was, um, uh, he had a passion for spelunking. He loved caves. And he came up with this idea, and the idea was this, and it was kind of a bizarre idea at the time, but absolutely amazingly important and very creative. What he decided to do was to cut himself, cut himself out entirely from day and night cycles. He decided to turn himself into his own lab rat. And the idea was he was going to go into a cave okay, for a period of 60 days. And in this cave, he was not going to have any cues until light and dark. He was going to bring no clock with him. He was going to bring artificial lights, but he would never know when it was daylight or nighttime. However, he had a phone. And this phone, he would call up to his friends on the surface at regular intervals to tell them what he was doing. Okay? And so he was a real meticulous note taker. So he would record, you know, when he ate, when he went to sleep, when he went to the bathroom, and he was French, so he'd record about his libido. All this sort of stuff would, <laughs> would happen. And he recorded everything, and he'd record his physiology, and you name it. And he'd call his friends, and, you know, he'd tell them everything that would happen. What happened was, Seif was asking, he called, one day he called his friends, since he had no knowledge of time. He says, okay, you know, when is this experiment going to be up? And his uh, friend said, you really want to know? He said, yeah, he says, tomorrow. <laughs> he had lost an enormous amount of time. And it turned out he had shifted his body clock, not to like our normal cycle, which is, you know, we were awake for 16 hours and we sleep for about eight, or give or take a few hours. He had shifted to a 12 and 12 cycle. So what he thought were sometimes were short catnaps were turned out to be a whole 12-hour sleeps. So he totally disconnected, you know, and it was all sort of crazy, except for one thing. He stayed on a virtual 24-hour clock. Yeah, so he was disconnected from light and dark, yet something in his body was tuned to 24 hours. And this, um, and this was, uh, you know, so he, he set off this fad of, sleep re of, uh, of uh, uh, isolation research. People, some people actually went crazy in there. They would sit in, like, there was one artist or sculptor who sat in a dark room for a week. They had to terminate the experiment because he kind of lost his touch with reality. I think he lost his touch with reality before he did the experiment, but that's uh, just me. Um, anyway, um, this tied into what this guy Kurt Richter doing, who, who, who was working on rats uh, uh, decades before, and tied into work that was going on at Caltech a few years later uh, in Seymour Benzer's lab, where they were working on mutant flies. 
Now, how do mutant flies explain anything that goes on in Michel Seif? Well, what happened is, so Benzer was running this fabulously important lab where they were looking at, at and analyzing mutants of Drosophila species, particularly Melanogaster, to understand the genetic variation of key traits. And one of Benzer's uh, graduate students uh, found a mutant fly that had altered rest activity cycles. Flies have rest activity cycles, and he found one that was mutant in this. And this was the great lab to find that mutant in because they were able to isolate it and really see it genetically. And it turned out they identified the the, a gene, one gene, uh, ultimately the first of many, behind the clocks that drive the rest activity cycles uh, in these flies. Turns out there are many genes involved, but this particular one was really important. And over time, work in, um, in uh, hamsters uh, and in other mammals and other creatures has revealed a really stunning fact. And this explains part of what happened uh, in Sifra, in Sifra's body, as well as in our own bodies. That is, every cell of our bodies contains a clock inside of it. And that clock exists in the working of DNAs and pro DNA and protein, which cycles during a virtual 24-hour cycle. So inside of us lie over two trillion clocks, each of which is tuned to a virtual 24-hour cycle. Indeed, much of our health depends on that. I should say also these clocks are tuned to light by the light entering our brain, which affects a patch of tissue uh, in, the, uh, in the brain, which coordinates in some ways these, these different clocks. It's a fabulous system. So much of our health, so much of our mood, so much of our susceptibility to disease actually depends on these, on these clocks. And indeed, the field of chronobiology is one of the uh, a major emerging disciplines uh, in our field. I mean, it's been shown that sort of DNA repair cycles during the day and so in, in our skin. And so that light uh, exposure at different times of day has different tendencies uh, to cause cancer. Likewise, uh, shift workers uh, who are exposed uh, to, uh, day, uh, to artificial light from midnight to about 8 in the morning have a propensity to develop certain types of diseases, in, turn, in, in particular certain cancers. Anyway, there's these, um, these disorders are very, um, I mean, these clocks are very profound. Indeed, what's profound about them is they also reveal our deep connections at several levels. There's um, a syndrome known as advanced sleep phase syndrome, which is relatively rare in humans. But what the, the individuals who have this genetic mutation cannot stay awake past 7.30 at night and tend to wake up around 4.30 in the morning. So their sleep is shifted. It's why it's called advanced sleep phase um, syndrome. It turns out that the genetic, um, the, the genetic modification that underlies advanced sleep phase uh, syndrome in humans is very similar to that uh, which causes a shift in the cycle of hamsters, and indeed is similar to that which is seen in flies. So here's a very powerful connection we share, a connection not only we share with the rest of animals on our planet, in, indeed involve, involving versions of the same genes and similar kinds of genetic and, and um, biochemical processes, but also an important connection to our planet's spinning in space and the moon's rotation around it. Because the length of days are, are set by the spinning of the Earth, which itself is, is related to its, its, um, its position and its, its, um, the angular uh, momentum and energy uh, with the moon that rotates around the Earth. So there's a powerful connection of the solar system in, into the solar system uh, in each of our bodies that relates directly to our health. There are other connections to the solar system that relate to our very existence. When we think about, um, uh, as well as our own human history, if you think about the orbit of the planet, it's been known for, uh, it's been inferred for about 50 years, known for um, a little bit less, that the, um, that the orbit of our planet varies in certain predictable ways. It varies from being, a, from being much, much roughly circular in shape to an ellipse. The wobble of our planet, uh, planet varies and so forth. And these cycles of orbital change happen on uh, tens of thousands of years scales. Every 20,000 years, 40,000 years, 100,000 years, there are these cycles of changes, these regular variations in the Earth's orbit. And these cycles interact with one another such that every so often these cycles interact to produce a situation where we get glaciation, where ice will uh, extend from uh, higher latitudes to low latitudes. 
So if we look at our planet, we have a rhythm of the flow of the ice, right, from high latitudes to lower latitudes, between the glacial periods and the interglacial periods. Those correspond in some ways to the regular variations of the Earth's orbit. The regular variations of the Earth's orbit, which are known as the Milankovitch cycles, after Milutin Milankovitch, who originally um, uh, described them based on some quantitative work he, he was doing. Actually, he was quite a character. He, um, he, he wanted to have a quantitative theory of, of the planet and of weather and of meteorology. He didn't believe people should be measuring things that he could figure it out uh, quantitatively. And he darn near came close. But what he figured out is essentially that these regular variations of the Earth's orbit, which influence the rise and fall of the glaciers, are themselves the product of the orbit of our planet with other planets in the solar system, with Mars, with Jupiter, and particularly Jupiter, which is the, which is the largest and which is the most massive um, planet in our, in our solar system. We also have known for the past 30 years just how important glaciation has been in human history. That is, the glaciers and their interaction, the climate change that's resulted from glaciers at different times, has been a major factor in human evolution. Indeed, one theory has that the, the opening of the, uh, from woodland, the shift from woodlands to grasslands, which was so important in our ancestors flourishing in, in bipedal, walking on two legs, and transitioning from an arboreal lifestyle to, a, to one in more open savanna plains is indeed in some way related uh, to glaciation, to the movement uh, of the ice. And there are a number of theories about that, and there's some disagreement there. But one of the key things here is that that certainly is correlated to it. Whether, was it, whether it was causal to it or not, uh, we don't know. But it certainly was one element behind its flourishing. And indeed, there are some theories that suggest that the proliferation of agriculture is related to uh, one episode of glaciation. So if these things are true, what it means is that the flourishing of our bipedalism and the, um, and the agriculture which we take for granted, which is so deeply affected around genetics, uh, is related to our planet's interaction with Jupiter, Mars, and other bodies through the variation of the Earth's orbit. So indeed, the solar system and our interactions with the solar system on the planet has been very important in human history in, in several ways, not only in the chronobiology, but also in the, um, in the, um, in the rise and fall of the glaciers. There's another way that the, our interactions with the solar system have been, have been incredibly important in our history. If you look at the history of life, if you take every fossil we know of, um, you know, for the last, say, 600 million years, and they lay them in a table in front of you, and you look for patterns, and you ask, you know, what patterns exist? When we take the whole shebang and you lay it in front of you, what you'll notice is there's kind of cool stuff to mine there, and a lot of uh, paleontologists mine it quantitatively. What you'll see is there are periods of time where many species die out virtually simultaneously around the world. These are the famous mass extinctions, cataclysms, if you will, for life on our planet. And then one of the you know, sort of hot topics in our field has been the sort of explaining these cataclysms. Well, one of the you know, sort of major explanations for one particular cataclysm, which is the one that doomed the dinosaurs of about 65 million years ago, um, is that a giant asteroid hit the Earth. And that a giant asteroid hit the Earth and caused massive climate change, which caused, ma caused massive um, uh, ecological collapse, which led to the demise of dinosaurs and other creatures. But one part of that cataclysm is the flourishing of our own lineage. Mammals were around in the fossil record for many millions of years before that cataclysm. And it's really only after that cataclysm we start to find large mammals, mammals diversifying, becoming all kinds of different uh, ecological, uh, residing in all kinds of different ecological environments. So it's very um, uh, profound to think that if it wasn't for an asteroid, our lineage may not even be here, may not even, you know, the mammals themselves may have remained small little tiny creatures living uh, at the feet uh, of the dinosaurs. So when you look at about you know, 13 billion years of the history of the universe inside of us, you see it in our atoms, you see it in the molecules of our body, which I haven't talked about, and you see it in the shape of our organs and the workings of our body. And it forces you to ask all kinds of questions. And one, I, one question I always get uh, is, you know, is, is it inevitable if you replay the tape of life that humans uh, would be here? And, um, my short answer is I don't know, <laughs> but the longer answer is let's, uh, let's, let's work the problem a little bit. What would be the evidence that would tell us that humans were inevitable? Well, I'll give you one kind of evidence. We'll never have it, but it's really cool. It would be as if we found space aliens, they landed on the planet, and they looked exactly like us, and they came in a spaceship with a fossil record that looked exactly like ours. 
It would show that the, there's an inevitability uh, to human design. Short of that, we really have to look at, sort of differentiate the forces of chance and predictability in our own past and ask the question, what are the governing properties of each of those? Or how can we measure the relative uh, effect of each of those? Well, on the side of chance lie those mass extinctions, those cataclysms I was telling you about before. Because many people have studied these things, and one thing is very clear, that your survivorship of one of these cataclysms is for features that are completely random with regard to how successful you are in the environment. The one feature that seems to be dominant in whether creatures, species, survive a cataclysm is whether their species are geographically spread about or whether they're ecological generalists. Not whether they're fast or slow or whether they have you know, stronger teeth or what have you. It's not their performance. It's really other properties, about the other emergent properties of the structure of their, of their species. That would suggest <coughs> that survivorship, and particularly if asteroid impacts or causes, that there's a degree of randomness and chance to who survives uh, mass extinctions. But there's other evidence that suggests, and this is largely biological, um, that there's a degree of predictability to evolution. And this is where I'll close. The degree of predictability lies in understanding the tree of life and one of the puzzles we've had. One of the puzzles we have in the tree of life is that there's a lot of noise in the data we use to, um, to reconstruct that history. And that noise is that we see similar features cropping up in all kinds of different animals and plants. Different solutions, I'm sorry, the same solution to different problems. So you'll see, for instance, you know, every creature, some of the trivial, some creatures, all creatures that fly have some sort of wing or a large surface area. But it goes deeper still. Some salamanders that flip their tongues can do so very rapidly. That same highly specialized tongue flipping strategy has evolved multiple times independently. So what we find is parallel evolution, similar designs appearing independently in different cases. And indeed, the more we look, the more we find that this parallel evolution may be a manifestation of, of something very important inside our genes. That is, that the major genes that drive, you know, that, 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 uh, that form the architecture of the body are shared in creatures as different as worms, flies, and people. So with the shared sort of versions of a, a developmental recipe that builds bodies and similar kinds of genes, doing often similar kinds of things in different creatures, what, that may being a, bring about a predictability to evolution that these common uh, solutions seen in, in different kinds of creatures. So the, the over three and a half billion year history of life in our planet has seen I think a, a mixture of chance and necessity, of, uh, of predictability uh, and, and chance and contingency uh, that has led to the origin of our species. Uh, I, there's no significant, uh, there's no, um, it, it's very clear that some aspects of our, of our presence on Earth are predictable. That is, there are certain biological necessities of having a creature with big brains. You have a big brain, you need to be warm-blooded to support that brain, it uses a lot of energy. And perhaps uh, having a digestive system like ours, having hands that are freed, uh, is also related uh, to, uh, to, to big brains as well. So these are the large questions, but obviously, uh, short of having the aliens with their fossil record, we cannot, really, uh, we cannot really test them. But one thing we can know, and I think this is the powerful thing that history has taught me, is that you know, just as science has removed our species and our planet from its privileged perch in the solar system, and a privileged perch in creation, that is that we're deeply connected, that we're, you know, that we're on a tree of life with, with zillions of other species, that our planet circles the sun and rather than the sun circling our planet, um, that all these things that have happened that have removed us and our planet from a special perch really have done something more profound for, for us. What they've done is they've connected us to the rest of life on our planet, to the rest of rocks on our planet, to other planets in our solar system, indeed to the universe beyond. And I find that uh, a very, very beautiful and indeed powerful thought. Thank you very much. I'm wondering if you consider human consciousness as the natural evolution, an ultimate expression of that evolution, or if it's just a product of chance. The question is, how unique is human consciousness? Right? I mean, there are many things we consider ourselves unique, 
But we, do we really know about consciousness and other creatures? And I would say the more we look, the more we find. We're probably, the more we look, the more we will find that we are deeply connected to other creatures in that way as well. Because if there was a study that came out last year on rats that showed that they're deeply empathetic. That they, I mean, it was statistically showed, you know, when you, when you cause one rat to suffer, the other ones show a degree of empathy and try to help them and, and, and so forth. And I think there's been other lines of experiments to show that animals have a richer repertoire of behaviors which we would consider to have a degree of consciousness uh, than, uh, than we normally would give them credit for. But getting to your, you know, exactly answering your question in terms of, you know, contingency or necessity, I think human consciousness um, is a product, I mean, I think there's a degree of inevitability to that, um, into the way our species has taken off. And the degree of inevitability would, would come from the fact that I think we entered at some point in our past sort of a feedback loop, where having increased consciousness bred more consciousness. That is, there was a definite positive feedback in once we entered that situation of having enhanced intelligence. Hi, uh, Carlos Alfaro, and uh, my question is, if history demonstrates that we are, that we have evolved or that we've become the way we are through evolution, are we still evolving and what are we evolving to? <laughs> are we evolving? The answer is absolutely yes. Um, we've, there's been a significant amount of you know, so genome studies that have compared different populations of humans um, have revealed that natural selection and evolution, all those basic mechanisms have indeed acted on our species in the last 5,000 years and are acting now. The kinds of traits that are under selection relate uh, to uh, our mortality, relate to our um, child childbearing, our fecundity. These are the so-called life history traits. And it turns out there's different human populations are responding differently. So certain parts, so, and indeed, socioeconomic and cultural factors affect how evolution is happening on us, clearly. And there's such a, a dichotomy in the sense that one population, there was a study that came out in Nature, uh, the magazine Nature, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, that, that showed that essentially one type of human population, the major selective factor is simple survivorship to age of reproduction. Uh, another set of human populations uh, where it's fecundity, number of children, age of first reproduction, and so forth. And those relate to socioeconomic conditions. You know, there's some parts of the world where disease, infectious disease, is the major uh, cause of mortality. There's other parts of the world, i.e. ours, where it's not infectious disease per se, it's, it's diseases of old age. Um, so what we have in human populations is, yes, there's clearly a signal of evolution by natural selection, but there's clearly an overprint, uh, if you will, of uh, socioeconomic cultural factors. Now, that being said, yes, it's, it's clear that ev we're still evolving in some way. Um, but, you know, what are we evolving to is your question. And, you know, evolutionary biologists tend not to look at it that way because we tend not, you know, evolution is responding to the environment and we can't really predict what the operative environment is. But let me offer a thought, though. I think that, you know, if you, we were to come back, all of us, take a time machine and come back in a thousand years to Los Angeles, um, if it exists, um, <laughs> um, and we come back to L.A., and, uh, you know, we're asking the question, uh, what are, you know, what, what's driving human performance? You know, we give you an intelligence test, and we look to see what drives that. We see how fast you run, how long you live. I'll bet you that what's going to be the primary drivers of human performance and its increase, which will, it absolutely will increase over time, will not be Darwinian selection per se, but our technologies, our ideas, our culture. You know, the gizmos, the medicines, and the practices uh, that we use to enrich and better our lives. You know, so it's... Uh, I think that that end of things, human ideas, cognition, the consciousness we had in the first question, are, are the really the ones that are going to be driving our performance for many of us, uh, many human societies, at least the ones who have access to technologies uh, in, the, uh, in the future. I think there was some special Natural Geographic channel that said that the species of human homo sapiens was down to about less than 1,000 in, in Africa. So my question is, um, if, you know, um, the Homo sapiens had been wiped out. Do you feel like the the other species of, like, say, Neanderthal or the Denisovans would have eventually evolved into a, an intelligent species? Neanderthals were very intelligent. They buried their dead. They had cultural practices. They had religion. So yeah, I mean, we just would have been a little more robust. Um, the uh, 
Um, now I, I'm facetious, but yeah, I think so. Because when you look at a tree of life, typically there's replacement, where when, one, when, when you have closely related species and one disappears, the other one tends to flourish. You know, um, but you know there've been if you just if you if you even look beyond humans, there've been many times. Actually, there was one particular time uh, where life itself on our planet almost went. You know, went. I mean, there was a time period of Permo-Triassic extinction where, uh, you know, almost you know over 95% of species went extinct. So you know, those those have been game changers for the history of life on our planet, just like the bottleneck that you referred to uh, for the human populations. Question right in the middle. Hi, I'm Jerry Schneer. Uh, we tend to define life in very narrow parameters. Uh, I saw one place where they were defining life using a little broader measurements that the planet Earth itself could be life. And it meets many of the criterion. And yet, when we look at life in other places, we always tend to look for water, carbon, oxygen, and we know life exists even here on Earth, where we don't necessarily use those elements. Would you like to comment on the... Yeah, well, you look for what you know. I mean, so, I mean, to some extent. And that, that, so, like, when I'm a, as a fossil finder, you know, I look for what I know. And so that, that's, a, that's a pair of glasses that opens up a world for me, but also limits that world for me as well, right? Our search images and tools are both, you know, are boons and busts uh, for us because they, uh, they give us opportunity, but they also uh, give us constraints. So you also have to be mindful of that. When we think about life, you know, what, you know what's, what's life on the planet? What's the initial life on the planet? The way I look at it is, like many, is, you know, what's the system that started this wonderful evolutionary process over three and a half billion years ago? And that system is really a sort of replicating molecule that replicates reasonably rapidly uh, and makes mistakes. Um, because those mistakes are the fodder for evolution. So if you begin at that level, then all of a sudden you're seeding the conditions for ever more, for natural selection to happen, for ever more complex, if you will, uh, uh, entities uh, to emerge. Now, what could produce that kind of thing, whether it's you know, water-based or carbon-based, I honestly don't know. Um, you know, water is a good indicator. It's such a wonderful matrix for so many interactions. It exists in three phases in a relatively narrow window of temperatures. You know, as, as we all, as you know, I mean, so it's it has the properties we've come to know and love that support life. But is that the only molecule that could do so? Oh, I would doubt it. I think we're just lacking imagination. But that's just me. I'm wondering if paleontologists are working with other um, fields of science to um, look forward and ask how climate change might affect the evolution of our species. There's a really big field called conservation paleobiology that's been developing over the last uh, five years. That is, you know, what we have is a multi-million year record of the responses of populations to global change. And as we as paleontologists get better at our jobs, which is more precise in terms of dating things, we all of a sudden have a record that's useful for predicting you know, responses of different populations to climate change. You know, do you go extinct? Do you move about? Do you evolve? Uh, over what time frame do these changes happen? Over what window of sensitivities to climate change are organisms sensitive? Yeah, so conservation paleobiology is uh, an emerging field. In fact, if you do a Google search on it, you'll find a bunch of papers that'll immediately pop up. NASA's Kepler mission suggests there are billions of planets. Uh, in our galaxy alone. Does it not seem more likely that this makes intelligent life more inevitable somewhere out there than it was here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, and yeah, maybe my dream of finding an alien with their fossil record, uh, which will answer the inevitability as possible with the Kepler missions. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, let's look at the time frame over which I've been talking on the planet, right? Um, you know, the planet's over four and a half billion years old, right? Plus or minus. Um, life is probably, you know, over 3.3 billion years old, if not older, you know, three and a half billion years old. So life on our planet, however defined, and the evidence for that got going really quickly on our planet. Then it took, you know, another over, you know, three and a half billion years to get conscious life. So life, boom, pretty quickly, then a relatively long time for, you know, the history of our planet uh, for conscious life to happen. And indeed, if you think about it in a you know, stellar perspective, you know, our planet's gonna, the life will bake off our planet in a few billion years. So probably, you know, it's about you know, half the expected life 
half the life expectancy of our planet it took to develop conscious life. Um, so when you look at the, the world that way, maybe, you know, look at the, the cosmos that way, it may be that life itself is, is relatively evolvable, that conscious life may take a few extra billion years to happen, and, we need, and since the universe is over, you know, it's about or slightly over 13.7 billion years, we might be at the stage where lots of other conscious populations exist. Hi, my name is Brian Cardella. I'm a biology teacher here in Los Angeles. Um, for me, when I'm covering the evolution unit, one of the more difficult topics to cover with my freshmen is how you um, explain the origin of life by connecting the work of Stanley Miller to all of a sudden having, you know, protobionts and functional cells. So, you know, when you have amino acids and RNA and DNA, do you have any advice for how I could sort of make it connect in their brains? Because they really have trouble wrapping their heads around that. Um, you know, the Orgel, Miller, Jack Shostak, and others who really think hard about, you know, um, how do vesicles, you know, how does vesicle formation, uh, how do what we know about the physical chemistry of how vesicles form, uh, how does that relate to the, the origin of cellular morphology? Um, and there's a paper by uh, John Sutherland uh, about a year and a half ago um, looking at the spontaneous development in a test tube of uh, nucleotides uh, and how they can assemble in an RNA-like manner. So, I mean, I think people are taking the uh, Miller the experiments or Nagel experiments a notch further nowadays, particularly Sutherland is one. And Jack Shostak, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago in telomeres, um, uh, has sort of shifted his research to the origin of life, and particularly the origin of cellular life. And he's been making great advances with um, self-assembly, looking at how, you know, what are the particular environments where self-assembly could take over? It's not that, the question is not that a self-assembly is important, but it's in which environments you know, and what are the properties of those environments that self-assembly can bring about, you know, the right kinds of environment to bring about a cellular morphology? Given what we know about history, fossils, evolution, how is it that science and science education continues to be challenged by religious ideology? Okay, thank you for that question, yeah. <laughs> That's a wonderful... Well, you know, I, I see there... Um, let me just... No, I've got to answer this one. This was important. This is a really important question of our age. Because we live in this time of a huge disconnect, right? We live in a scientific age, just like she was saying. That we're, you know, we need a populace. Just at the time, we need a populace that can make informed decisions about nuanced information, whether it's climate change or biomedicine or agriculture or all the things where scientific thinking, rational thinking science is very important, uh, vitally so. We encounter um, a populace that's often scared of science at best or, in, or, or opposed to science at worst. So sometimes we're you know, obviously battling uh, preconceived religious um, dogma. In other cases, though, I think we're battling fear of science, science phobia. And I think they exist in our society uh, in uh, equal measure, um, frankly. I think you know, there's uh, teaching science... Uh, I can't tell you how many times when, you know, as soon as I put a natural log on the board, half the class just starts to shake. I could feel the, you know, the, the, sweat, the sweat droplets beginning to drop on the floor. Um, so I think it's, it's both the, the, um, the power of religious dogma, but also a fear of science, oftentimes. And that, we see that in universities. We see that in society uh, as well. Um, so in... In trying to combat that, which and combating it I'm trying, uh, that's one of the motivations for writing Your Inner Fish and uh, The Universe Within is sort of broader science education. The tools that I use, and they're not the exclusive ones, but the ones that I, I feel can be very powerful are stories. You know, we're a storytelling species. Telling the stories of discovery done by real people you know, taking real chances, sometimes making real mistakes, but learning from those mistakes, sometimes persistence, persisting, sometimes getting lucky. But those very human stories of scientific discovery, I think, have a power to them. And they have a power of breaking down the entry to science, uh, but also uh, breaking down the fear of science. So when I talk to creationist audiences, which I've done a few times, um, I present the Tiktaalik story with slides. Uh, I present the Tiktaalik story because um, it's a very powerful story of discovery. It's the fact, you know, it's the, the, the knowledge of evolution, a knowledge of geology, a knowledge of the study of stratigraphy. That's what led us 
to find Tiktaalik in the first place, this, this intermediate. And that story of discovery has a way, like others, there's many others, um, have, has a way of transforming the conversation. A, it makes it more accessible. B, it makes it really human. Um, and C, it's really hard to argue with a, you know, a physical object, <laughs> you know, I mean, especially when I hit you with it. But I mean, it's a physical object um, that, um, that really speaks, you know, in the sense that it's, uh, when I show this fossil to kids with the whole body, I took it into my son's preschool after it, you know, got all the press associated with it back in 2006. And I showed it to the kids. This is a bunch of six-year-olds. And I said, guys, what do you think it is? One kid said, oh, yeah, it's a crocodile. It's got a flat head with eyes and teeth. It's got these big teeth here. It's, got, it's a real crocodile. Another kid corrected him and said, no, 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 it's a fish. It's got scales and fins. That's what the body has, scales and fins. And another kid in the back said, maybe it's both. Okay, so, I mean, you know, this is six-year-olds just figuring out a physical object in front of them. Right? There's power to objects, and that's what makes paleontology so powerful. Right? So it's about objects. You mentioned in your earlier example about predicting evolution in the future that if we could come back in a thousand years, we might see some changes. And I realize that was just an example you were giving, but do you actually see evolutionary changes that are notable, say, in a species like humans over that short a time? If we went back to the ancient Egyptians, say, would you notice any evolutionary changes, or would there really not be any in that short of a time frame? Well, we see changes. It's not really clear whether they're really environmentally driven or evolutionary, so we're bigger, we live longer. You know, you just walk into a Middle Ages building and you hit your head, right, if you're in England, because everybody was so small. Um, so there are clearly changes in human populations. The kinds of changes I think that, you know, we're picking up with the kinds of studies that are being done are physiological changes, ad adaptations to particular diets, um, adaptations to particular kinds of microbial regimes that exist. So you wouldn't see those, but they would definitely manifest in sort of the quality of life and the duration of life of those people who have those mutations. Hi, my name is Annika, I'm 12, and I had a question which I've asked many people before, but I wanted to hear your take on it. So I know that atoms themselves are not alive, but I know that they comprise like living beings like us which are alive. Is there like a specific cutoff point where things which are not alive become things which are alive? I think that cutoff is when the system becomes evolvable. That is, when the molecule can replicate, I mean, crystal structure can replicate, but it doesn't do so fast enough or make enough mistakes for an evolutionary process to take over. So that's really kind of what it takes. It takes a molecule that can replicate and screw up as it does so. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you very much.